You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is a very special edition of On Principle. Usually I say challenges in Jewish education, and this is definitely a challenge. The, the challenge here, of course, is the challenge of trying to understand something that is very much in the sphere of conversation, a challenge to try to give a definition to something that for the last over 100 years has fascinated people and has now once again become a topic of conversation and fascination, and that is quantum physics, quantum mechanics. And the reason I think why people are interested in it has to do with a uh, the popular uh, film, uh, Oppenheimer, which was based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called American Prometheus by Kai Bird. And J. Robert Oppenheimer, along with many other important scientists at the, the first two or three decades of the 20th century, were at the forefront of developing this field of quantum physics, quantum mechanics. I, I therefore turned to people who could really explain, understand, and, and, and give a an idea of some of the complexity and depth and importance of this field. So I've turned to, first, my friend, the founder and Rav of the Center for Modern Torah Leadership, Rav Arya Clapper, who I once remember telling me that he had a theory of, of, of sort of how quantum physics and Torah can somehow are aligned with each other in some way. And he directed me to Dr. Jakob Weinstein, who is the chief scientist of quantum technologies out of Princeton, New Jersey. So, Ravarie, why don't we allow Jakob to at least give us, you know, from the ground up, something about quantum physics and quantum mechanics and lead us through how significant of a field this is and, and how it has come to affect so many parts of our life today. Thank you so much for having me. So great to be here. So quantum mechanics is the science of things that we generally regard as, as very small. The things like atoms and subatomic particles, such as you know, protons and electrons and neutrons, those objects are governed by the laws of what we call quantum mechanics, opposed to Newton and what we call classical mechanics. And the science of quantum mechanics uh, has some aspects about it and has some phenomena that we would regard um, as non-intuitive, that we're not used to in our, in our everyday life. So, for example, um, things like atoms, which, you know, people generally regarded as particles, um, actually also have wave-like components. And things that people regarded as waves, such as light, actually also have uh, components that act uh, as particles. And so one aspect of quantum mechanics, which is, which is very important, is the idea of what's called wave-particle duality, that, that everything... Um, actually acts both as a particle, which is, you can imagine like a little ball type thing, uh, and a wave, like you would imagine a, a water wave. And that discovery led to things like, like a laser. So that's one aspect of quantum mechanics, which is, I would say, non-intuitive. Um, but then there are other ones, such as uh, superposition, uh, in which a quantum mechanical particle, again, like an electron or a neutron, can be in multiple states at the same time. So what does that mean? Let's just take a, a proton. A proton has what's called a spin. You can imagine it as if it's like a spinning dreidel. 
You know, so you can spin in two possible directions. You can spin your dreidel clockwise, you can spin your dreidel counterclockwise. If you had a quantum dreidel, you could actually spin it in both directions at the same time. And this is not a probabilistic thing. This is not that we're not sure whether the dreidel is spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, but actually can spin in both directions at the same time. There are additional phenomena of quantum mechanics that are strange to something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which uh, does not allow, for example, let's say speed and position be measured with infinite accuracy at the same time. Um, and again, this is just an analogy. It's not necessarily the thing that's you know, the idea itself, but it's a useful way to think about it. If you take a picture of a, of a race car that's going by very fast. So what's going to happen? You know, the, what you're going to get out of the picture is going to depend on your shutter speed, right? How much, how much time is the, where the shutter opens and opens and closes. So if you have a very fast shutter speed, then you can, you know, the, the, even though this, the race car is going very fast, you'll basically get the race car sitting in one place, uh, more or less, with maybe a little bit of a blur. So you'll, you'll know its position very well because you can see the race car, but you have no idea what its speed is because you don't see any sort of blur if you just look at the picture. However, if you have a, show, a, a slower shutter time, then you'll see a blur across your picture. And so from that blur and knowing your shutter time, you'll more or less be able to figure out the, uh, the velocity, right, the speed of the race car but you have no idea what it is because it's just a blur. So those are three, three interesting aspects of quantum mechanics. Uh, again, just to review, number one, wave-particle duality, the idea that everything has both characteristics of, of a particle and characteristics of a wave. Uh, superposition, which is the ability for uh, quantum systems to be in multiple states at the same time. And, and finally, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which limits the amount of knowledge you can actually get about uh, various objects. Oh. Yako, these aspects that you're referring to, this is a thumbnail understanding of how it works for us. This development of this wisdom, a lot of it, as you say, was extremely theoretical. People, it was, it was phenomena that was almost impossible to observe. They had to theorize that it was happening and figure out ways to test them. Is that the way, in many ways, how quantum physics was different than, let's say, what was considered standard physics up until that point? Yeah, so if, if we go back um, to the history of physics, let's say to the late 19th century, people thought that physics was basically finished. People thought we had Newton's laws, we understood gravity, we understood electromagnetics, meaning we understood what's called Maxwell's equation, governs electric fields and magnetic fields, and people thought we were done. And that was the end of, that was, that was the end of physics. And 20 years later, the entire picture of physics had changed. There was special relativity, general relativity, quantum mechanics completely undermined everything that we knew. And we realized we actually didn't know much at all. And so the basic uh, insights, again, it's hard to, it's hard to point to like one discovery or one insight that would like, cause the revolution. Um, but certainly one that, that was helpful was again, Werner Heisenberg's solution of what's called black body radiation. So, Again, black body radiation is, let's say you have um, something like the sun. Okay, so the sun is at a specific temperature, which, you know, which you can, you can kind of measure. And based on the temperature, you can determine what color light uh, the sun will give off. So the sun gives off light, uh, not only in the visible, the colors that we see, but also in the infrared and ultraviolet and so on and so forth through the electromagnetic spectrum. And you can determine that spectrum more or less based just on the temperature of the body itself, the temperature of the sun. And so um, Heisenberg figured out the answer to that problem. He figured out how that works. But what it caused 
is that energy or light has to be broken up into packets. It's not smooth. Right? You can't get any number. There are jumps. And so a quantum is a packet, like a little, you know, it's a little thing. And, and what that meant is that, for example, light works in packets, which we now call photons, or little particles of light. But they're not waves. They're not just waves, which you can imagine is a continuum that any amount of a wave. The, the wave could go up in any amplitude. It's not true. Light, it, it's not solely true. Light is also has these packet characteristics. Um, and once that comes in, then you have to start thinking like, wow, interesting. Like, how does it mean that light works in packets? And this was um, uh, that point of light being, um, uh, you know, acting as packets came up with uh, Einstein in what's called the photoelectric effect. Photoelectric effect is that if you have, a, if you have a surface and you shine a light on it, then again, depending on the characteristics of the surface, but electrons will start coming off that surface. And what was determined is that there's a very, there's a threshold at which the, the electrons start coming off. And the threshold isn't the amount of light that you put on. There's a certain wavelength, certain color above which you'll get electrons. So again, if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, we'll just take the visible for now. So red to violet, red light is weaker. It has less energy than violet light does. And so you start seeing electrons come off based on the wavelength. When you have more, when you, when you have higher, higher energy um, light, but having more light doesn't help you get over that threshold. Once you have the right color that will start emitting electrons, then having more light will give out more electrons. But before that, if you're, if, if you're, if your light is too weak, then it doesn't matter how many, how, how, how much light you actually shine on it. And so that, that phenomenon, like, why is it that there's a special there that we only start seeing electrons when it gets a certain color light? That was explained by Einstein, and that's known as the photoelectric effect. He won the Nobel Prize for that, um, uh, he discovered in 1905. And so what that led to the, what that led to is the fact that light is these little packets. They're these little, what we, what we now call photons. And it's the photons that are hitting the electrons and knocking them out. And so once you start thinking in terms of, in terms of packets and in terms of discrete um, uh, values rather than continuous values. They can only take, you know, for example, integers, one, two, three, four, right? Those are discrete values. Once you start getting decimals, you get kind of continuous, right? Between one and two, there are lots and lots and lots of numbers, right? There are an infinite number, uh, many numbers. Um, and so you can get a continuum, but one to two to three, that's not a decimal, that's discrete. So once you start thinking about things in discrete values, then you can explain all sorts of other things. So you can explain uh, how electrons orbit around the uh, around the nucleus of an atom, again, something that people people struggled with. Why is it that the negative charged electrons don't fall into the positively charged nucleus of an atom? So quantum mechanics gives you a solution there. You know, so, so once you start thinking, again, it's a totally new perspective. It's really fascinating. And again, I, I got this from Bird's book, but I, I'm hearing it from you as well, that as much as you know, we look at globalization today as something very it's almost so immediate, like like this Zoom conversation we're having. But it seems like the the theorists and the writers and the experimenters, they were all sort of feeding within each other. One would write a paper and that paper would be read by someone else. And as you said, Einstein's, what Einstein had written becomes the basis for something very quickly that someone else is doing. So it's almost like a, a fermentation of knowledge that was coming from from so many different directions. Is that the way, is, is science so exciting today as well? Science tends to be a collaborative effort. It's, it's like easy to say, oh, that there's this 
one person who's this genius and up on top of some mountain somewhere. And if you want to learn truth, you have to go and climb up to that mountain and learn the truth of truth of science. And, and there are geniuses. Let me. There, there, there are geniuses. They're they're once in a century. But most scientists, and even those genius scientists, tend to collaborate and tend to tend to work together, read each other's papers, build off of each other's knowledge. Um, certainly, at the time when quantum mechanics was being developed, so the center of science was in Germany, and so American scientists, including, for example, Isidore Rabi, who won the uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1944 um, and was was Jewish, went to Germany to study science because, like, where else where else were you going to go? Everybody went to Germany. And it was only with the advent of World War II that the Germans route all the Jewish scientists, many of which came to the United States, and the center of uh, scientific knowledge and scientific um, analysis started to started to change. Are the discoveries and ideas as groundbreaking as they were in that that glory period that that that, that you just referred to, or is it pretty much you know we're just more incremental in terms of what we're discovering now? So I think it somewhat depends on, on the topic of what, what you're looking at. In terms of theoretical physics, there are only, you know, revolutions don't happen every day, right? So you could point to Newton's understanding of, of gravity or what we now call mechanics, you know, classical mechanics. You could point to Maxwell and uh, the electro, electromagnetic theory and his ability to tie together electric fields, magnetic fields, and write down equations that encompass all of that. Uh, and then you have you know, special relativity, which modifies gravity and quantum mechanics, which modifies mechanics. Those are major revolutions, but it happens for whatever reason it did that in the early 20th century, you had these two major revolutions, both relativity and, and quantum mechanics. And I don't believe we've had anything like that since. That being said, we've certainly had revolutions in technology, which you know, not theoretical physics per se, you could build a computer based on the laws of, let's say, everything that we learned in the early 20th century from a theoretical physics perspective. But in terms of being able to exploit that and think in new ways, as people like Shannon and Van Neumann did for a computer, I mean, again, I think that's revolutionary, though it's not really a revolution in theoretical physics. It's a revolution in our so I have heard, and again, I, I maybe you could just sketch the line a little bit for us. You know, I have heard that not only you know the development of the atomic bomb, which is sort of like what's behind you know the Oppenheimer film, but even many many things, as you say, uh, I heard ATM machines and other sorts of other things built on these algorithms are somehow connected to the breakthroughs in quantum mechanics, quantum physics. So how past the bomb do we have these other sort of mainstays of modern life that are built on those theories? Sure. So a couple a couple of points. First of all, quantum mechanics undergirds everything. Um, it's a universal theory. Um, everything respects the laws of quantum mechanics. So it's wrong to say that something doesn't work on quantum based on quantum mechanics because everything works on the basis of quantum mechanics. I'd rather formulate it as you know what's New discoveries, what new technologies have we been able to build because we because we know quantum mechanics we didn't know, you know, 150 years ago. So if that's okay. I'd like to you know look at the question that way. But in, ter- in terms of in terms of the bomb, um, the atomic bomb, and again, so I I don't want to pass myself off as as a bomb physicist, but the knowledge of of the atom, um, which 
we understand much better because of quantum mechanics, that allows us insights into the um, uh, into the bomb. So first, you need Einstein and his famous equation of e, e equals m c squared. So so you need you need you need to know that first. That's not quantum mechanics. That didn't arise from quantum mechanics. That arose from special relativity. And then you need to understand the working of the nucleus of an atom. Um, the nucleus of an atom has in it uh, protons and neutrons. Protons are positively charged. Neutrons are not charged. And so it's it's a little weird because originally you might think, okay, well, you know, how in the, how is it that these protons draw positively charged stay together? We we're used to the fact that things that have the same charge repel, but they do. You know, if you go deeper into atomic physics, so we, we can understand why. Um, but then every once in a while you have decay from the neutrons. You can have, for example, alpha decay in which a couple of protons and a couple of neutrons would just kind of come out. And people didn't understand, like, why in the world was that happening? And so uh, eventually with quantum mechanics and without going into all the details, you know, people started to under- understand that. And then they realized that you can actually spark a phenomenon called fission in which the nucleus of, the, uh, of an atom is, is broken. That by doing so, you would release a, a huge amount of energy. And that is what causes, that's what causes the bomb. So had there not been that, much just more than speculation, had there not been that research and experimentation, then, you know, they probably would not have recognized that type of explosive, to say the least potential of what, of what would happen, right? It was really built on a lot of the, 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 the quantum mechanics thinking and understanding of the nature of, of something which they couldn't really perceive, but which they knew was there. So that is really incredible because you know, so many people have pointed to that moment in the mid 20th century as, you know, the example of how far man had reached in understanding his planet and the, the subatomic universe around him. But in order to unleash it in such a, a deadly and incredible fashion, I think that's part of what, you know, the struggle that, that Oppenheimer himself had. But there's a lot more, uh, I would say benign applications, right, that we are surrounded with. Like you mentioned a couple of things, but what else can we say is, is the gift other than the than the bomb? It's a little it's a little hard to like point to one thing because people, you know, in, in, given my job and everything, people call me a quantum physicist. There's no such thing as a quantum physicist. Every physicist is a quantum physicist because quantum undergirds everything. So you can't start without you know without quantum physics. So nonetheless, what we've been able to exploit um, uh, based on quantum mechanics is, uh, is, is, for example, lasers, things like transistors, our whole knowledge of materials, even our, our knowledge of pharmaceuticals is all based on just looking at atoms, looking at molecules in a way that we, that we couldn't. I mean, there's, you don't even have to stick with quantum physics. You go into quantum chemistry. How does, how does chemistry work? How do we, how do reactions work? All of that. You remember back to you know, high school chemistry and you, Remember, oh yeah, what you do is you put electrons, you start putting electrons around your nucleus. You have like S, P, D, F, which I'm not a chemist. So this is like what I remember from high school too. But the fact that you can put like two electrons in the S shell and six electrons in the P shell, and then you go across the periodic table. And if you remember, if you remember all that, the, the reason why things are like that is based on quantum mechanics. So the reason why you can only put two electrons in an S shell is because of the fact those two electrons have opposite spins. We spoke about spins before, the fact that electrons have a term that looks like a spin, like a dreidel. So the reason why you could put two of them 
is be, in any shell is because one is spinning in one, in one direction and one is spinning in the other direction. But you can't put two that are spinning in the same direction in a shell. That doesn't work. That's based on the, the Fermi exclusion principle. Even understanding like basic chemistry uh, came about because of the quantum mechanics. So, as you say, the inventions and the pushing the envelope in medicine and, as you say, laser technology and and I heard even ATM machines and any sort of things that are yeah. that are, are around, it only really was built on that type of thinking. We mentioned the, the again the amount of Jewish minds that were involved in in, in this field, you know, 130 something years ago. Would you say today, the fact that you have been that you have chosen this as your vocation, do you see this aligning in some way with um, your ability to think? in a more sophisticated fashion about ideas of the Torah? I would say two levels. Uh, level number one, which I don't need to expand on because the Rambam already said it, right? If you want to come to know God and to fear God and to love God, look at his creation. And so, so Maimonides, the Rambam, uh, understandably said, look into heaven, look at the stars, right? Because that, that's what they didn't understand. That was, right. that, that was beyond. We don't need to do that anymore because we realize that we don't understand anything. We can look at subatomic particles and we can look in the deep depths of the ocean. And so God, from my perspective, you know, Hashem created two things. He created Torah and he created the world. And so we can come to know him and to love him through Torah. And that's, and that's wonderful. We shall, well, we are, we are all commanded to do that. But he also created the world. So his imprint must be there as well. So I, I think that's what Rambam urges us to do. And so I have the good fortune of being able to to do that in, in, in my vocation as, as well. When it comes to learning per se, it, it, it's hard to know what models or what, what shapes someone's approach to Torah. I think I would be, uh, be lying if I said that, you know, the years that I spent studying quantum mechanics and studying the, the scientific fields that I, that I have don't affect my everyday thinking. How, how can it not? It, it has to. Can I point to any specific instance and where it does? I don't think so, but the, the general perspective has to be true. Then if you want to start making analogies between quantum mechanics and, and, and Torah, I'm going to leave that to Robert Clapper. But um, uh, I, 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 think analogies, I think analogies can be made, but I don't want us to fall into a, to a trap of, um, for example, God in the gaps, right? the fact that, oh, you know, we don't understand this and therefore God is the one who solves our problems. That's, that's generally not a good way, good way to go. But, but you do feel... Jacob, that in many ways you are plumbing the the nature of, of of the universe and coming closer to understand the principles that God sets down that that makes the universe run. Absolutely, Ravari, you've sat here uh, patiently. I know you've been listening and taking it in. So I'm, I'm having fun listening. That's the uh, first of all because I'm. Uh... I, I know a little bit about history of science, I think. So some of that is, you know, one of the, th- the books I most enjoy about physics is a book called The End of Physics, which was written in 1993. So physics ends a lot, <laughs> not, not just in the, uh, right, not just in the, you know, the, in the late 20th century, it ends, it ends over and over again. So one of the things that interests me as a layperson. Um, so one is, it seems to me that quantum mechanics is often, the, the particle wave distinction is often presented as a sort of a way around the law of the excluded middle. Right? It enables you to believe two contradictory things simultaneously. Is that actually the way you think about it? Right, that you know, that the world no, the world isn't bound by our Sicilian logic. That way, things can be. And you said, you know, and the way you present the superposition, 
uh, also seems to be a similar notion, although I think supervision gets complicated by you can only measure one, right? It's, it's related, related, related to Eisenberg. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, to what extent does that uh, capacity to believe that things can be contradictory, are you more tolerant of contradiction in life? Or do you think this is just a, uh, you know, if people are illogical, you know, okay, right? So you can be right. So people can also be waves and particles simultaneously. So I would say as follows. I think what quantum mechanics teaches us is that there is no, again, speaking broadly without going into, without focusing in on any one, one thing, but there are things that we as humans understand as waves, and there are things that we as humans understand as, as, as particles. And then there are actual things. They are neither. They are, they are what they are, and they have characteristics that are both. But the thing itself is the thing, right? An electron is an electron. It is not a wave. It is not a particle. It is an electron. It has characteristics of a wave and has characteristics of, of a particle. Now, now it is true that we as humans find it easier to say, oh, well, we have this thing called a particle and we have this thing called a wave. And it allows us to kind of, that, that's important for our, for our conception of, of, of the universe. But the thing itself is, an electron itself is not either, is not either a particle or a wave. If I were to make an analogy of that to something like the, a brisker chatira and a, um, let's say, a chapsagavra type of chatira, then I would say whatever halakhic topic they were necessarily talking about can have aspects of chatza and, uh, and aspects of gavra, but it doesn't necessarily have to be either. The economy is important for our thinking, but the economy doesn't necessarily have to exist. Now, of course, if I want to go, if I want to take that a step further, then I would say as follows. When you have something in a superposition state, so let's say, again, let's say you have an electron and spinning both clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time. At the end of the day, when we measure, we don't see that. Okay, so this is an important aspect of quantum mechanics, that measurement changes the state of an object. So it is true that my, let's say, quantum dreidel is uh, spinning both clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time. But if I, if I were to measure the direction of the dreidel spin, I will get out either clockwise or counterclockwise. I won't measure both. So then if you take then, for example, Gamara's assertion that uh, one cannot join the Sanhedrin unless they can bring multiple proofs that a uh, Sharetz is actually kosher, right? So, so we, one, 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 one could suggest that um, any halakhic query that comes before us might have aspects of all possible answers. But at the end of the day, when we actually pass in, we need to come up with one, one answer. I can see parallels uh, along uh, along those lines. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure the quantum mechanics is required to think in that way. Though, yes, it certainly helps in terms of my thinking. Second question, I guess one asked for I moved was: um, it seems to me, uh, you know, from an external perspective, that one of the big shifts about quantum mechanics was that you no longer had intuitions. The whole point of it was that it was counterintuitive, and so as opposed to prior science a lot of which, like modern philosophy, was about, right, because modern philosophy doesn't believe you have direct abstract knowledge anymore, so the whole goal of philosophy is to put is to put your intuitions into language. Uh, and in many ways, prior science was about putting physical intuitions into, right, into some kind of conceptual structure, and then in the 20th century, physics just totally changes, and it's completely an internal thought structure that it's, it's interesting. Once in a while, it turns out your thought structure has turned out to have real, right, to, to, to hit reality, but nobody's reasoning from a perceptible reality. And so that also, I think, you know, could both change your attitude towards the world, but it could also uh, allow a certain kind of thinking in Torah, which diverges from, from intuition entirely, 
it allows you know let's say you know as Parnas was a little bit before your time I think right uh while you right Parnas used to like saying right that you know that we're now we're entering the Halakhic universe and so all of your right, all your intuitions uh, you know should be sh- should be shed here at the door so I wonder do you think that that's the case that it enables makes it intellectually congenial to think of Torah as a um, as a kind of discourse that doesn't require any uh, any intuition about the real world. So I would say, first of all, I'm not sure you need quantum mechanics to provide that for you. I think in some sense you already have it with mathematics. There are certainly mathematical principles and mathematical ideas that people, when they originally formulated them, just assumed they were, you know, mathematics to Hadira, right? Kind of make mathematics, you know, more, uh, just find out what happens when you, when you go forward in mathematics. Um, and then it turned out that some of those uh, ideas actually had practical applications. The thing with mathematics, though, and with quantum mechanics, and, you know, if you want to go now into special relativity, which also you say is non-intuitive, they, they still have rules, right? You can say they have their own rules, but they, but they do have rules. You can't think whatever you want and claim it as mathematics. But you can't think whatever you want and claim it as quantum mechanics. So I'd say that that's number one. You know, so, so yes, can you think non-intuitively in Torah? Uh, I think we have to. I think we'd have to define the word intuitive like, a little bit more carefully. But, but, but sure. I mean, I think you're. you're I, I think you can call Torah anything that follows the rules of Torah. There are things that are, that that lie that lie beyond the pale, and therefore, I think those would not be acceptable in terms of like what we call what we call proper Torah. I think. Right, so I have two things. Right. So okay. Because I have two things I want to put in. And Rabbi Rabbi, turn it back to you. Uh, if you. If, Whatever you want. The, the first is, so as you know, right, you know, I'm sort of resistant, right? you know, but I'm raising the challenge, but I'm resistant to the notion. But I'm wondering just for fun if we could say that part of the question is whether we should think of Torah as Newtonian, uh, right, or, or quantum in terms of the way it plays, the way it relates to our world, right? Whether we think that, um, because Newtonian mechanics is still intuitive, right, right, um, fundamentally. And you can and you can test Newtonian mechanics against your own uh, your own perceptions, and so we can think of there's a vision of Torah which treats people as Newtonian. Yeah, I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. But first of all, you can test quantum mechanics too. You have to test. You have to test. You can test experimentally. You, you can test, test experimentally, correct. right? But not intuitively. Okay, so so then that gets you into the question: What do we mean by intuitive? I can set up complex Newtonian challenges that will do things that you don't expect. Awesome. So for example, if I have multiple objects in various configurations, I could get all sorts of weird things. And so you can see this even like um, amongst the part of, uh, amongst the chunks of ice that make up the rings of Saturn, uh, or even the, the solar system as a whole, and the resonance that occurs between, let's say, Jupiter, Saturn, and the Sun, all of which are humongously bigger than than Earth. And so you can, you can, you can get all sorts of weird things that will happen that at least a priori I wouldn't expect just based on Newtonian physics. Similarly, if I go to chaos theory, and when we, when we talk about chaos from a scientific standpoint, it has a very, it has a very explicit definition. So chaos in, uh, in, in physics is when you have a, when you have evolution, um, of systems or things start moving based on laws of physics, but no matter how close your initial position is, if you have two objects, however close you want to put them, 
um, be it in position, be it in speed or whatever, you know, whatever characteristics you want to, you want, you want to give to them. If those, um, uh, objects are operating in a chaotic system, then you can't say what's going to happen to one based on what's going to happen to the other. The fact that they're even just a minuscule part in some characteristic like position is going to mean that after a certain amount of time, they're just going to be in completely different places. And so I'm not sure that I can, I would apply the word intuitive to uh, Newtonian mechanics as a whole. I think that the, the, the basic equations that we see more or less, I would say, line up with what we experience in our everyday life. So in that case, it's true. But Newtonian physics, you know, certainly electromagnetics, I think can still really surprise us. We can say like optics, obviously, right? You know, the whole, the whole point of optical illusions, right, is that there are things that happen where you're, where, right, where your, where your sense data is false and you have to, right, and to understand what's really happening. You have to think past sense data. But my sense is that we used to think of those as exceptions. And our goal was to say, okay, now we can understand why in that case the world doesn't match our intuitions. Sure. But really, nonetheless, right, our, but nonetheless, our sense of the world is mostly reliable. Right? And we have to explain the exceptions. All right, so the way I usually talk about students is, is Aristotle and two-headed calves. Aristotle says two-headed calves you know, are rebellions of, of matter against form. Uh, but now we say two, right, and where calves have one head, according to Aristotle, and, this, right, and the two-headed calf is, an, is a rebellion. And now, as a modern, we would say, no, what a two-headed calf proves is that calves can have two heads. Right? And your definition of calf was wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, my sense is that what all of the, right, you know, the reason we're so receptive to chaos theory, among other things, is that we no longer expect the world at a subatomic level. We don't expect sense that it to be reliable, a reliable way of perceiving the world. And in a sense, it's, you know, it's fascinating because we sort of, before you know, we had the, you had the Kantian revolution where, okay, you know, the human mind is not a reliable way of perceiving the world, but that's okay because it's the only way we can perceive the world. Mm-hmm. And then quantum mechanics came up and now there's a new way of perceiving the world that only some of us really get. And the rest of us can, right? And the rest of us are reciting Ikri Amuna. Uh, about, right, but, uh, but it's catechism, right? That we don't really understand what it means for an electron to have spin. So my suspicion is that that made certain kinds of learning attractive and still justifies them. Uh, whereas I, you know, I try to push back and say maybe learning is actually supposed to be Newtonian in many ways, like where, right, where the, uh, where the counterintuitive should still be something that needs to be explained as opposed to saying, oh, well, that really approves that everything is a hook. I don't really understand it. Only people who have right. the capacity to understand spin can really, right, can really say anything about Torah. Uh, so I wonder, does that influence you in that way? Right? Are you, are you, right, are you more tolerant of counterintuitive Torah that way? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it does. I mean, that kind of like reminds me of the famous Brisker joke where, you know, Brisker's kid is playing, uh, you know, is playing in the kitchen and knocks, knocks down a pot and, and whatever's in the pot falls on the kid and burns, and, you know, and burns him. And, uh, you know, Brisker's wife is like, oh, uh, well, like, oh no, you know, I little, well, Yankee is, is, is hurt. This is terrible. You know, yeah, get, get, you know, get, call, call, call the ambulance. And the brisker looks at her and says, what do you mean? It was a cliche. Me. Intuition. And again, I'm not a philosopher in any way uh, or a biologist, but intuition presumably is based on our experiences in life. And so in, in, in that sense, yes, we don't experience one. Therefore, it's not intuitive. Say the same thing about Torah. We say, um, uh, it's cliche. Me. So like, obviously it's not, yeah, obviously it doesn't burn the kid. Like, what's the, how could you how could you think otherwise? Or do we say no? The kid has a wound. We gotta we gotta get him to a hospital. Technically, you know, if you, especially I just did the Yerushalmi and Shabbos. Gemara actually says yes, it's Israel Seach, but mm-hmm. it's it's not called Bishul. 
In other words, <laughs> right? And, and the shame bishul is not there. And I guess that's really what we're talking about is that, what do you mean? <laughs> Here you see it's obviously scorched this, this flesh and it's made a change in it, but there's a definition of what bishul is. And bishul has to be clirishon or clirishon aleish. And, and therefore, this is what the Torah asr, the Torah doesn't asr anything else. Briskers have helped, I think, Ravarie in, for many people, to sort of wrap their brain around halachic inanities or inconsistencies or things that that didn't make sense to them. You know, it's din aze. You know, this is the din there, and 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 sort of putting borders of how much you can think and how logical things have to be or how much you have to feel them. And I think it, it's helped people in in many ways. It's it's given them a sense of mental obedience. And to say, well, that's my job is to be obedient to this idea, even though I've got other sorts of thoughts swirling in my head. I mean, I think you have you have you have two different kinds of jokes, right? You have the you have the the das londonim hefech das balabayas sort of joke, right? You know, in Torah, we don't have to we don't have to take we don't have to take the intuitions of people who don't know this kind of material well, you know, seriously at all. And you have yeah, I usually teach this through the introduction to Shire Das, where right the introduction to Shire Das, where he. He says there are people who think that you can reduce halacha to economics and politics. And on the other hand, there are people who say that it's just coincidence that halacha deals with all the same issues as economics and politics. And neither of those really make sense, right? You know, it's very unlikely to have a system that, you know, that, that covers all the same questions in, all, in many similar ways and has no relationship whatsoever to the goals. I actually find, you know, quantum mechanics, the, the reality of quantum mechanics makes me in some ways more tolerant of just say, uh, of someone like I, I would say like the Miri likes to play you know like to play with brisker minds obviously right he comes up he says he comes he says opposite sides of the Hakira on purpose uh, you know on consecutive pages and so it makes me tolerant of that you know okay maybe halacha maybe the star doesn't have to be a thing that is conceptually coherent and then that's just, you know that's how just as a lay person that's how it affects me the realization that we can that we can ignore the law of the, of the excluded middle about conceptual things. Real things are allowed to ignore the law of the, of the law of the excluded middle because may, we, I can then say, because you know what, I don't, obviously I don't understand them well enough. Right, right, right. That's fine with me, but I, I can live with contradictions in, uh, I can build a system which treats things simultaneously as one thing and the other without, without bothering me. So that, that was what interested me. One of the things that Yaakov mentioned earlier was the Rambam at the beginning of Hilchus Yisodia Torah about how to come to love God and the way, of course, is to look at the universe, to look at what's out there based on the psukim of just and and realize what sort of birish failure you are, how insignificant you are. And the Rambam Mishnah Torah, as we know, was not written for philosophers. It was written for everyone. And I think there the Rambam was talking about actual perception, going out, you know, staring out to the immense uh, uh, constellations in the middle of the night, just sort of taking in the magnificence of what your eyes were perceiving and recognizing how, how can this be? How can all these huge planets exist out there and God has created them all? And, or even if it means looking at a waterfall or a tremendous mountain, very much physical perceptions that inspire your heart and, and, and you, you're moved by them on, on all different levels emotionally and, and, and in a sensory way. And then you start saying, well, who could create that? Like, who's the Balabira? In the Maranabucham, however, 
the Rambam, uh, writing for the advanced masses, talks about, well, take a look at something like a, a physical phenomena and then go to the abstract and make it something universal. Take something like a tree and again, you see the way it grows and then think about the theory of what the idea of a tree is and the idea of what growth is. And it becomes not so much about what you're touching or impressed by, by its, by the strength of the trunk or the, the breadth of its branches or the beauty of its, of its, of its leaves, but rather the idea behind it. And that the Rambam says is what not just gives you his sowers to have Ava, but actually gives you Netzach because then you are bonding with the idea behind life, the idea behind what is true, not just about this specific tree that inspired you, but about the uh, the principle of all biological uh, things. And that is, I think, in a way, that's a little bit like what a person who's involved in quantum physics has. He doesn't necessarily, yes, he can he could go out there and and see something and and and, and be inspired. That's the Mishnah Torah sort of for everyone. The only thing which gives us eternal life is the ability to to extract ourselves from that particular that particular aspect. It's only in the in the universals, and that's the Rambam's theory of of of, of the uh, of the eternality of the soul. So I think in some ways being involved in quantum physics or being involved in, in that type of thinking allows you to extract yourself from the here and now to something that is universal and beyond. I'm wondering, Yaakov, and maybe you agree, uh, uh, that the, that vocation aligns very much with, although you're saying it's, it's all, you're not going to turn it into a holy, into some sort of something holy, but it, I think it aligns with, with being able to think about things in the most subtle, abstract way and the ways that just like God, who, who, can, who has no form. Yeah, I, 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 I would, I would agree. And I think that ability to think, and going back to what Reverend Clever was talking about, the ability to think beyond everyday experiential is important for, for any, for any view, for, for, for all of humanity. It's easy enough to ignore God. But one of the things that I think science teaches us is that we do so at our own peril. Science doesn't say that explicitly, but the fact that science requires us to look more subtly, to really dig down and understand what is making the universe that requires thought and realization that there are things that we don't, there are things beyond our just what we can, what we can hold and what we can have. And so in, in that way, I, I do think that as, as much as the antagonism between them has been promoted by certain parties uh, over the past, certainly over the past couple of decades, I think science and religion are very much, uh, very much on the same team. We always go back to education. Arvaria, you, you deal with, with a lot of, you're dealing with post high school with promising college students. I always say that in, in the Yeshiva high schools, you know, where we're, where we're sort of like pushing our, our young men and women towards Thinking and learning, perhaps, would you say that there needs to be a greater emphasis on on physics and quantum physics, quantum mechanics? Does there need to be? Is it being taught enough? First of all, I think that Rama is really important, right? So, you know, I think it's really important to teach 
science, and this my father said a lot, right? Teach science as an opportunity for right to, to know God. Whatever science you teach, right? You know, no, no one should be afraid of knowledge of the world, right? That's a, I think that's, that's it's a bad education if people are afraid of knowledge of the world, and and the attempt to. I think Dr. Schatz is probably right that our goal is to try and make sure there's a theology ready for whatever reasonable science appears, as opposed to trying to use theology to censor science. If you think that you're ready, if, you're, if your theology is going to make predictions, let's say if you're theology, you know, if we had, if our theology had, you know, had been really terracentric or if theology had, right, had, right, had been really, you know, absolutely concept, conceptual or sense that all those sort of things would have, it would have been exploded by the real world and, I think the Rambam teaches you to be, you know, to be prepared for the, for the real world to teach you God, you know, teach you about God as opposed to being afraid of the real world. That I think is the core thing, whether we teach science in depth or not. I think that, you know, like every, in every area of life, we should try our best to meet the intellectual curiosity of our students, but you know, without fear. The second thing is, you know, if you want to be that, and I think this is part of the conversation has shown is that what makes Torah relevant to an, in age is going to be to some extent a function of the general intellectual content of the age. And, right. And so if you're, if you're teaching Torah with purely Newtonian assumptions, right, that's just not going to work for students who are really part of the world. All right. Who already know, right. Who know about quantum mechanics, whether or not they know quantum mechanics, right. It's just not going to, it's just, right. It's just not going to work for them. Um, because, right. Cause you're, you're, you're just, your, your frame of reference about the world is different. Therefore, they're going to assume that everything you teach them about Torah is antiquated and really has no relevance. Because that's right, because right? it, it just won't fit their vision. It won't be a live option in right in Jamesian terms. Right. So I'll, I'll get in my pet theory. Right. So like the the way in which quantum mechanics most affects my thinking, I think is that there's an old you know binary in law, which is right: are we discovering law or are we making law? And that right, and that sort of makes it really hard to deal with suck. Because right? if if you're making psak, then psak is arbitrary, and right, and if you're discovering it, then that's not true to your experience, which has creativity and all those things in it. And so, th- the metaphor that what you're doing is measuring a set of probabilities, right? Which is what quantum mechanics lets you do, right? It's, you know that there's a there are a lot of, lots of ways it could have come out, and your choice is what makes it come out this way. But you know you can't keep on announcing things that aren't right. If you keep on announcing billion to one chances, right? You're not you're not measuring the world right, right? That's you know if you if if you have the halakhic equivalent of everyone's atoms just scattered all over the world, right? There's no there's no coherence, right? Even though there's a you know there's a one in a billion you know one in infinite right possibility that you know that 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 all that everything could change state simultaneously. You think of that? So I think that's you know, to me that's really sort of a dominant vision of halacha, uh, right? That that right that what I'm doing as opposed to is figuring out all the probabilities of all the different aspects and disciplines I'm engaged in, what the text means, what the authority level is, right? What the moral, what the moral situation is, what the human situation requires, all those sorts of things. And when I say there's a psaac, what I'm doing is I'm measuring, which doesn't mean that the moment before there wasn't, right, wasn't a superposition, but with different odds, right? It's not 50-50, right? There were different odds of, of right? Of, if you measured a hundred times, right? You know, 60 times will come out that way, 40 times will come out that way, and that's, right, because that's the way the system is supposed to work. The problem of Ari is that, is that although it, it allows you to feel a certain amount of confidence in your psaac, despite other sorts of doubts, it almost obviates the possibility of that psaac becoming precedent for other psaac, right? Because then you, 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 you almost, how, how do you then replicate it? Oh, well, you know, Clapper wrote in his chuvas this way based on this. So now, the next, you know, and again, this this gets into a whole discussion of how we use 
our predecessors, Piskei Dinim, to sort of guide us. Yes, I, so I think that there are two answers to that. You know, one, one of the easiest answer is, you know, it's just to say Shemosh. But the, uh, right, that's the easiest answer. But the other answer is, again, I think that people test postgame to see whether they're, right, whether postgame fit with a sense of what the probability should be. And if, you know, it's okay for postgame postgames once this way, 99 times the other way, and you say, oh, that one time is because of, right, you know, because that was the right time, right, for the 1% probability to come out. It doesn't, right, again, it, it shouldn't appear at random. But what quantum mechanics, I think, does, and maybe you can respond to this, is it offers a model that's between determinism and randomness, uh, right? That I think that's, that, that I think is one of its, its enormous philosophic, and that way it creates space for free will because the, right the the rationalist problem with free will is that we cannot conceive of anything in ordinary experience that is not either determined determined or arbitrary, and quantum mechanics provides a model for that. It doesn't tell you that's free will, right? Free, you know, because because it, it functions according to its own rules, and free will, you know, may not have rules at all. Whatever the, you know, as the extent it has rules, it's not free. But that I think, and that's why I think in halacha also that um, it's why it's powerful for me, is it gives me a way to think of halacha as something that is not determined, and yet is not random. Right? That halacha could go in lots of different ways, and yet it's not random. Right? There are only some ways you could go, and there are ways which are wrong. It's be very hard. It's hard for somebody to present halacha to me. In a way that doesn't account for that vision of looking at the world. And I think that if we, right, if we can't teach, you know, so it's very hard for a student, you know, who hasn't, you know, in any way imbibed that concept of the world, probably to follow what I say about halacha. Right. So that's, that's where I think it's really important educationally for students and particularly for teachers of Torah to understand the way in which particular scientific conceptions shape our broad view of the world. Since we think science tells us things that are true. Not absolute, but true. It's a failure in Torah if we don't have Torah in relationship to things that we believe are true about the world. Again, sort of the elephant in the room that we're ignoring, I think, and I just want to perhaps put a little period here, is that there there seems to be statements in our sacred texts that seem to run counter to what we believe scientific reality or scientific experimentation and scientific direction has shown us and you know they're still there whether it's about spontaneous generation or other things now uh, on that i would just i would mention the ramchal's statement which is so it's so novel he said well yes they were dealing with the science of their days and the science of their days has now shown there's there's been flaws in that science but for that time that was like every generation has its scientific aspect of, of, of truth of where they're holding on whatever this progression is. And, and, and therefore every door has its, 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 its hasoga. That doesn't mean chazal were not uh, operating within a holy system with, 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 a, with a correctness. Every generation has its wisdom. And even though this next generation rejects, aspects of the first one, somehow Torah still has its relationship to it. You know, this is sort of like a very radical idea that the Ramchal posits, that in this way he can sort of get out of the fact that, you know, many things have been shown to be incorrect. He doesn't have to bend over backwards to say, you're just not understanding what Chazal meant when they talked about, you know, geography or when they talked about the wisdom of that time. To me, that's a healthy way uh, if we can give that over to students, the problem is young people 
you know, it, it, it's hard for them to, 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 to accept that. You, you want me to, you want me to, to somehow, uh, accept the principles of Miku and Hazoka, but not accept the Rabbi Barchana and the same Masechta or, or even, even statements about where certain countries were or where certain things are or certain, what certain medicines work. You want me to accept that? You want me to accept the, the, the principles of Aloha behind it? And you want me to reject this other stuff? Why? And, and I think this is really the challenge is to be able to cut out the, the principles of our system and say, this is a system that does have eternal aspects and it can be uh, it can be advanced and can be used generation for generation, even though the science is, is subtly changing. What Yaakov said to us in the beginning of our conversation would have been somewhat unintelligible. 150, would you be correct? Like 175 years before that, we would have had, you know, the greatest scientific minds, you know, they wouldn't have understood what Yaakov was talking about. I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Ravari and Bruce Yaakov. I, I think we have to sort of be able to give that that over uh, to our young people because they're not going to accept they're not going to accept all the terutsim right? they're not going to accept the the chukim. I think you know, and I think science has its it has its own answer. No, no scientist of any repute would dare to say that Newton was an idiot because he didn't know quantum mechanics. I mean, how would even how could he even say such a thing? So why would right. you think that's Hazal or idiots because they didn't know? I mean, you can't even say such words. It doesn't make any sense. Aristotle believed all, all sorts of things that we you know are completely untrue, but no one would disrespect Aristotle. To me, it's not even a question. Like, I don't even see the problem. And the problem is, is that when we present the corpus of Hazal as something that is, 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 is a wisdom from beyond. So therefore, every single statement, every point from every Medrash and Hazal, even if it's from the med- medicinal part of Hazal, or the geographical part of Hazal, or the Guzmos of Hazal, that's all on this level. It's something beyond. This is Torah. And therefore, it, it's open to those arrows more than, than, you, than if we would quote Aristotle or quote any of the, or Newton, or any of the thinkers. Maybe, maybe we need to go the opposite way and teach. The science also comes from God. Yes, yes. So I think that's, the, the problem is, is that people are afraid of pairing away. People are afraid, well, you're saying this is not true. So I think that's where subtle thinkers like yourselves are going to, are going to be able to help instruct. Like you say, there's discovering the mysteries, you know, in the enigma are, are, are I think are extremely important. So I want to thank you guys for, for just taking the time here and Ravarie, thank you so much and for making the shit up. Be well. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.